Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Carol Mason is the president of the prestigious John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. The former Obama Justice Department official and I got into the specifics of criminal justice reform. What does it mean? What should it mean? And what should states and the federal government really be doing to truly reform the system? The problem we have now is we think prison is the only way to hold people accountable when they break the law. This conversation took place at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado on June 29th and has been edited for content and clarity. Carol Mason, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, as I said in my introduction, you were the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Before that, you were at the Department of Justice. Talk about what you did there. Well, my prior job was I was assistant attorney general of the Office of Justice Programs, which is the part of the department that um, deals with state and local criminal justice and victims issues and all of the um, statistical work and the research work for the Department of Justice. What I used to say is I had, at that point, a $4 billion purse to work with state and local governments in helping create safer communities and deal with their criminal justice and victims issues. So you you mentioned stats. So... For for the listener who knows the term criminal justice reform, let's put some let's put some numbers behind that term. So, how many people are incarcerated in the United States? When you talk about people that are in our prisons and jails, it's about two point two million people, and of that, ninety percent are in our state and local um, prisons and jails. And then, uh, how about the number of people who are uh, on probation or on parole? How much um, is that Close number? to 5 million. So, so uh, when you add the two numbers together, you have about 7 million people in our country who are caught up in our criminal justice system. And then I noticed you, you, people use the term, and I'm guilty of that, prison and jail mm-hmm. interchangeably. But they They're mean different, different things. So prison. So prison is typically when you've been um, convicted of a crime and you're, you're sentenced to a term of incarceration. Those are prisons. Jails tend to be the places where people, you can have a a sentence and be in jail as well, but people generally are in jail pre-conviction. That's when you're arrested for something, you're taken to jails. Um, they they're in local communities and they're typically run by your sheriffs. And and jail is where you where you spend your time until you are able to make bail. Correct. Right. Correct. Generally. Uh, generally. Generally. Right. So, and the reason the complication mm-hmm. is because the, the the state and local criminal justice system is so dispersed because every state and local community has their own criminal justice system. So I'm glad you said that because again, when you think criminal justice, you think that there is a uniform standard from the federal government on down, that they're all playing by the same rule book. They're all playing by or using the same standards. And that's not the case. Definitely not the case, which makes it so complicated when we talk about this issue of reform because there, there are no systems. But it's also an opportunity because there are some places that are doing some wonderful things. And we take those best practices and try to share them with other communities so that we all know what are the based on research, what are the things that are positive that are impacting our communities in a positive way? Okay, so that's on the state and local level. Let, let's start at let's start at the fed, at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Community, uh, criminal justice reform is talked about, you know, reducing um, minimum sentencing and, right. and things like that. Can you just give a, a broad, a, as brief a broad overview as you could? So there are about 
200,000 people in our Bureau of Prison System, and most of those are convicted, uh, well, all of them are convicted of federal crimes. And um, the, the way that system works is, is our U.S. attorneys in each state um, bring charges, federal charges, could be drug charges, it could be white-collar crime charges, and people, if they're convicted by a federal judge, then they go to federal prison. Mm-hmm. So it's that's that's the difference. And so when folks speak about criminal justice, justice reform at the federal level, uh, aren't they talking about uh, re- reducing the uh, what is it? Is it reducing the mi- minimum minimum sentencing? Minimum sentencing? Right. And right. what are some of the other right. things that they're going right. for? So, so the the challenge with the federal system is the judges don't have a lot of discretion, and if you're convicted of a particular crime, they've got guidelines that they've got to follow about what your sentence is. And what many of us have been trying to do is is lower lower those sentences and really think about. What does public safety look like, and do, should we be jailing people for long-term sentences for drug crimes, for example? Mm-hmm. Back because of the Crime Act in, ni- in the 1990s, we got these really harsh penalties, and we've got people sitting in jail for who are really drug addicts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this is digressing a little bit from what you're talking about, but one of the the the, the opioid epidemic has opened up an opportunity for us to think about drug addiction differently and see it as a health issue and not a crime issue. And so the, the ch- what many of us want people to do is think about who, it re- who we really need to be lock- putting in prisons and separating from society, you know, and thinking about, you know, violent criminals, people who really pose a public safety risk, not people who really have other issues and ought to be um, um, treated as, as, as having an illness. But the other part of the criminal justice reform is what are we doing with people when they're incarcerated? Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, under the last permanent leader of the Bureau of Prisons, Charles Samuels, <clears throat> the um, Bureau of Prisons was really focused on how do we prepare people to come back home? Mm-hmm. Because 95% of people who are in our prisons and jails are coming back home to their communities. And we want to prepare them to be successful when they come home. And so the, that's what we call reentry. And so there was a really a lot of positive reentry work happening in the federal system. And I think it is continuing. Um, but that's part of the reform movement. It's, it's also reducing who's coming in and what we're doing with people while they're there to prepare them to be successful when they come home. Now, you said 95% of the people in the when you were talking about the federal system, all they, systems all, all systems will will be released and mm-hmm. there should be, you know, enough thought put into like what happens after they are released. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of people for whom, you know, once someone's arrested no matter what no matter what it is, they the narrative is that person needs to be punished. Right. Um, are we thinking about we, meaning the American public, mm-hmm. are we thinking about criminal justice in the wrong way? So I'll, I'll, I'll reframe <clears throat> it. You know, I'm a lawyer, and so it's hard not to think like a lawyer. <laughs> but, you know, when I went to law school and we talked about the criminal justice system, we talk about the, found, you know, the foundation principles of what we're trying to do. But I think people need to get back to what we really want is safe communities. We want safe communities where people can thrive and be successful because that's what everybody wants. Every parent, no matter where you're living, what your socioeconomic status is, you want your children to grow up and have opportunities. And so the challenge for, for, for me is, is getting people to think of our criminal justice system in the same, fra- that right framework of what's going to create safer communities. And we know from research that locking people up for long sentences, arresting people and putting them in jail for drug crimes are not what produce safer communities. What produces safer communities is looking at what um, what are the causal factors putting people into our criminal justice system. 
lack of opportunity, lack of jobs, health care, education, poverty. You know, we've got so many in our, people in our criminal justice system simply because they're poor. And what we ought to be doing is investing upstream in, in, in keeping people out of the system and providing them opportunities. And a lot of states, including a lot of our southern states, have been really progressive in what we call the justice reinvestment movement and looking at how do we keep people out of the prison system who don't need to be in it in the first place and reinvesting that money back in our social safety networks that, that have caused our prisons and jails to become the social, social safety network of our countries when they shouldn't be. You know, I'm glad you brought up the, the southern states and how they're progressive right. in, in what they're doing. But before, before I get, uh, get to that, um, sounds to me like what you're saying is, should, well, should we change uh, the the nomenclature is it criminal justice reform or should be should it be a more positive sounding name because the the adjective that comes to mind is holistic mm-hmm. that if so- someone's if someone's in jail because they're poor mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they're a bad person that doesn't mean that what they did maybe morally speaking on one hand is bad but on the other hand if someone is stealing stealing mm-hmm. food to feed their family right. is that is right. that wholly immoral? Right. So should we should we be thinking about criminal justice reform not as how to ease punishment, but how to um, fix society as a whole? I'm actually going to steal that and use that going forward because I think that is right in terms of reframing what it is we're talking about. Um, you hear lots of folks talk about we've criminalized behavior that shouldn't be criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like you said, it's a result of poverty. It's a result of addiction issues. It's a result of mental health issues. And so I, I do like that reframing and thinking about it in terms of how do we want to um, create a society where we're creating opportunities for people to succeed. Mm-hmm. So talk more about these southern states being progressive. Those yeah. are two two phrases that I never thought I would hear, Southern states and progressive. But what are they doing that mm-hmm. makes them um, role models, if you will? So what they're doing is, and some of them come at it for different reasons, but we, we're spending billions, $80 billion in our prison system right now, incarcerating people. Nationwide. Correct. Is, yeah. And so people are thinking now, that's not a good use of money, and we can't jail our way out of of the situation. So so people started looking at what are the factors leading people into our criminal justice system, into our jails, and making some policy changes so that you're not incarcerating people that shouldn't be incarcerated. And Georgia has done great work in this. Texas has done great work in this. And what's fascinating about it is they've done a great job of reducing the prison population while crime rates are still going down. So that's that's proof that that incarceration isn't what's keeping us safe. Um, so wait, so what are they doing exactly that is bringing the 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 numbers yeah. down while also arguably keeping communities safe? Um, creating mental health courts, creating drug courts, um, diverting people from from prison and jail, and getting them the other services that they really need. Um, instead of putting them in prisons and jails. Um, so is there is there a standout program or a standout state that is doing something that other jurisdictions are are copying? Um, well, I'll I'll mention Texas because it's something people don't normally think of Texas being progressive on no. criminal justice issues. <laughs> yep. But they have substantially reduced their prison population. I think they've closed around eight prisons. In Texas, and again, the crime rate is still low. Um, so that's 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 a pr- 
progressive, using that sense. Um, South Carolina has done some really good things in terms of preparing its prison population to come back out and be successful in society when they come back home. So are these efforts being done by state and local governments or are these efforts being done as public-private partnerships or are these things being done because of public and community pressure? All of the above? All of the above. So so there's a program that when I was at the Department of Justice that we um, coordinated with Pew, um, Pew Charitable Trust called the um, Justice Reinvestment Act. So I call that a public-private partnership, a philanthropic partnership. And what they, what we did with that program is we went in and worked with state and local governments at the leadership level. So you had to have buy-in from the governor and from the legislature to really do a deep dive in looking at their policy um, decisions that led to people going to prison and being willing to make those long-term changes. Then on a, on a more local level, um, through the Second Chance funding, we um, uh, put a lot of money and investment into um, resources for pe- when people are coming out of prison and connecting with them with resources so they have the opportunity to succeed when they come out of prisons and jails. So there's a lot of mentoring programs, a lot of programs going on while they're incarcerated so that we can make the smooth transition when they come out too. So so one of the things we all like to talk about is that reentry ought to start the first day of incarceration. Um, but I've actually heard a different viewpoint that I think is even better. We ought to start reentry from the moment they're sentenced. Hmm. And be thinking from that moment and think and having the judges think when they're sentencing people about how am I going to prepare this person to come home and succeed and putting the resources around people. And, and, and again, we ought to be reducing the number of people we are incarcerating and separating from society. But those that we do, how do we prepare them to to be successful later. In, term, in terms of sentencing, um, I'm always under the impression that judges have discretion. Uh, that's why they're judges. Mm-hmm. They, they, they know the law, they interpret the law, and given the case and the individual and the circumstances of why that person is standing before them, he or she can decide among a range of things, a range of time, how a per, what a person should serve. Is the, uh, the amount of discretion different on the federal level than the, than the state and local level? So on the federal level, they have very little discretion because they've got sentencing guidelines. On the state and local level, it's very dependent on what the state and locals are, but judges generally have a lot of discretion. But even in the federal system where you've got guidelines, the, the U.S. Sentencing Commission just came out with a report to explain the racial disparities mm-hmm. in sentencing. So they, they had a theory that some of the racial disparities were because of violent crimes. But when they controlled for violent crime, they still found out that that black men received, on average, much longer sentences for the exact same crimes than those who were white. So there's something going on. And I don't think that every judge is racist at mm-hmm. all. But I think that what data helps us see is, is you've got to expose what's happening to light. Because once you see what's happening, then people can begin to, to dissect it and look at what is it we're doing that's that's causing this disproportionality. And once you expose it, then then think about where there are places where we can focus on it and make a difference and make a change. Because we've, we've got to have a more fair system for people to have faith in the system. And what you just said, the, the note I just wrote down as you described that that report that showed the incredible right. disparities is that right there is the very definition of structural racism. As you point you pointedly mm-hmm. said, not every judge is not every judge is racist, but the system but the system is. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a much bigger 
mm-hmm. problem. That's a much bigger project. Um, when you read that report or as you've been doing mm-hmm. this work, if there is one thing that you could do mm-hmm. to like take a huge sledgehammer to structural racism, well, is there one thing that comes to mind? Well, I'll tell you, when I read the report, um, what I did was I tried to contact some friends of mine who were on the federal bench to say, do you all see what's happening? And is there a way for you to pull your colleagues together that the, the, the different circuits ought to have some dialogue around this? Because I don't know if they're aware of it. And they ought to look at it in a way that's not threatening. Look at the data and say, what's happening and how are we making our decisions that's causing this to happen? And getting judges to get some implicit bias training by the right people, because if it's done by the wrong people, it's not mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. But really thinking about and looking about how are we making decisions and, and, and that cause this result? Because you can see on the state and local level that when that data is presented. So the Manhattan DA's office had a report done by Vera Institute mm-hmm. that showed the racial disparities. And Cy Vance, the DA, took that report and changed his practices in order to figure out how to address that systemic disparity and and stopped prosecuting some crimes that had a disproportionate racial impact that have no impact on public safety. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that um, the Obama Justice Department made a push on was – um, I, and you were there, so mm-hmm. you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I do believe it had to do with um, discretion in sentencing in drug crimes. And charging and even prosecuting. And char- right. So they, yeah, the memo to the U.S. attorneys about thinking about. So what we have today under the Sessions administration is the, the U.S. attorneys are being instructed to um, push for the, the, mo- the, 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 the highest crime you can charge for. Versus our philosophy during the the Holder administration, which was to look at trying to be more fair and look at things and not and not charging the the toughest thing you can charge and looking at people as people looking at their circumstances and thinking about which is what you what you want in prosecutorial discretion is thinking about looking at the person as a person and the circumstances that led them there and what is the best way to deal with what they've done because the, the problem we have now is we think prison is the only way to hold people accountable when they break the law that's not the only way to hold people accountable um, we were, you and I were at a breakfast meeting this morning, and they talked about the disparities between the U.S. system and other countries. The the default in the U.S. is seventy percent of people who commit crimes go to jail. In other countries, other Germany, I can't remember the Germany and the Netherlands. One was seven percent, one was ten percent. Right. Quite a disparity in terms of, and you look at the safety of their countries. They're safer than we are. So Mm -hmm. jail is not the answer to creating safe communities. In fact, one of the people I I was talking to before the actual breakfast start talked about how Germany was the gold standard in the way they the way they treat their quote unquote prisoners. They have names. They're called by their real names. They don't have uniforms. They have street clothes. Um, She also said that they don't have their prisons look more like college campuses than mm-hmm. than ours do and that has and treating mm-hmm. um people who have broken the law that way and people who are in who are in prison helps them for when they get out and go back into the community. And they also don't have sentences as long as we do. Right. A 10-year sentence there is a long sentence. Right. I think she was also talking about how um you know Sometimes just 48 hours in prison is is enough to like literally scare mm-hmm. someone straight into mm-hmm. uh, not is the correct mm-hmm. term recidiv- recidivism recidivism re- right. but a person recidivates 
Right, re- right. which means return to prison. Return, right, return right. to prison. So um, in terms of, well, I, I'm not sure which way we'll go on this, but I'm going to say something. Well, I'm going to follow um, you. Um, <laughs> so what we know in terms of keeping people who've been in a criminal justice system from going back is education, jobs, and connection to family and community are the three key factors proven by research that will prevent people from coming back into our criminal justice system. So the question is, how are we going to invest in people in those systems? And I also think if you invest in those systems on the front end, right. you keep people out of the system anyway. Can you talk, elaborate on each one, yeah. on each of those things? So um, um, I am president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. So um, and uh, education to me, and, and I'm a product of a generation that that education was what made the difference in my parents' lives as, as as black people growing up in the segregated South to opportunity. So I always think education is the key to access to jobs and many other things. So for me, um, on the front end, we ought to be educating people, but people who are incarcerated in our criminal justice system, we ought to be providing them access to education. Doing an assessment the minute people come into the system to figure out where they are, what their needs are, but assuming that people don't have have literacy issues, teach them to read and write while they're there. Then get them on a path to higher edu- to a GED and then higher education. But don't, but 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 figure out what it is they need because we need to equip people to be successful. And education is the key. So one of the things we have at John Jay is a prison to college pipeline program, which has been hugely successful. And um, early in my tenure at John Jay, I went out to Otisville Prison um, to meet our students there because that's what they are. They're our students. And to get in the program, you have to be within five years of release. We don't ask what you're what you're in prison for. You're all our students, and I can tell you the 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 first visit I had, five or six men came up to me independently. They were taking an anthropology class and an English class, and they came up and they said, "If I'd had this anthropology class before I came to prison, I wouldn't be here." because then I would have understood the social factors that led me to be here. These are their words, not my words. And so so it is not lip service to say that there is so much talent caught up in our criminal justice system. Um, this was my first graduation at John Jay in May, and I had the pleasure of giving a degree to a young man who started in our um, Otisville prison um, program, who then went to Hostos Community College and got a community college degree and just got his John Jay bachelor's degree and he has been on the um, honor roll ever since he's been a student at John Jay, meaning he graduated with almost a 4.0. Every semester, he got a 3.5 or better. And he will tell you, I'm not unique. I'm not special. I've just been given the opportunity. And and I just, you know, it's. I think we all ought to um, recognize and see where there are opportunities to be, to have an impact on people's lives that's not expensive. It's much more of a better investment to invest in people and educating them on the front end Mm -hmm. than having to incarcerate them. And then the second piece is that connection to family. and community. So, um, so one of the beauties of, so I remember when um, we went to uh, Goucher college with uh, the attorney general Lynch at that time and um, John King, secretary of education to announce the second child, second child pants, Pell grants. And um, we sat in on the classes with the students and they, the, who were incarcerated, and they talked about not just the impact on their lives, but their children's lives. Because one of the things that I had to learn is just because somebody's incarcerated doesn't mean they can't be a good parent and that they don't want to be a good parent. And it doesn't mean that their children don't still need them as parents because they very much do. And so when the kids found out that their parents are in college – 
The parents are more engaged with the students talking about what are your grades, are you doing your homework, what's going on, and they inspire their student, their own children to be successful. One of the Hostos students talked about when he, excuse me, one of the Otisville students talked about that when he graduated with his associate's degree, his daughter, um, he pushed her to go back to school and get her degree to be uh, a pharmacy tech because she saw what her father had done and it inspired her. So we're talking about generational change when we make these kinds of investments. And then the third? Is jobs. And I think that, that there are many ways to education is also key to jobs, whether it's higher education or vocational education, but we need to give people the skills to be employed because once people come home, they need to have a job. And, and one of the things that was wonderful, uh, that, that, that again, this whole movement about rethinking about what we do with our criminal justice system is nonpartisan. It's not a conservative issue. It's not a liberal issue. It's people realize it's a people issue and it's an issue that's, that ought to be important to all of us. So you've got companies like Coke Industries who have, have hired people on a regular basis and have for years who have a criminal history. Um, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore talks about that the employees that they hire who have a prior criminal history record are better employees than those who don't have a criminal record. And I'm proud to say that during the time that I was at the Department of Justice, I hired two people who'd served time in prisons. And if the Department of Justice can do it, anybody can do it. Wow. I mean, my eyebrows just went up. They're in the Department of Justice. Well, they're now both gone because they got other opportunities, but but it did work. It did happen, and they were phenomenal. Well, that brings up the issue of, of was it banning the banning, banning the, box, the box, right? Which is not a uniform right. a uniform standard. Right. Uh, why is that box there to begin with? Well, so so what those of us who are in the ban the box movement would say is, and I didn't know what the phrase ban the box was when I first started at DOJ, but it's what it means for people is when you get an application for a job, whether there's a question that says. Have you had criminal history involvement? And if you have to check that box right before you've even had an interview or anybody's looked at your qualifications, you're disqualified. So what the the Ban the Box movement is about is saying, interview people, get to know people, make a decision about whether you want to hire them based on their credentials and what you think, and then look and see if they have a criminal history record. And if they do, does it impact their ability to do the job? Mm-hmm. So, so if your job, so Johns Hopkins, for example, what they said is, you know, they, they hire people who are in the medical industry and whatever they were convicted for has nothing to do with that. They hire them, train them, and they're wonderful employees. Home Depot does the same thing. You know, if the, the, if the job is, you know, where there are challenges, if you want to be a police officer or something in law enforcement, sure. there's much more of a challenge there. But again, if we did it at the Department of Justice— other people can do it. And so I think it's, it's looking at whether it's, it's getting people to make the hiring decision based on the person in front of them, not, their hit, not, not just making a decision before you even get to know the person, and seeing whether or not the behavior was really disqualifying for the job you want them to do. I just want to point out that it was Nancy Gertner, who is the person who was yes. telling me about, about Germany, a formal, former federal judge right. who is now writing a book about all the men she, she, mm-hmm. sent, uh, she sentenced, mm-hmm. uh, which I can't wait for that to come out because that will be, that a, will be fascinating. a fascinating read about a judge mm-hmm. and you know, I guess coming to terms with you know, what she had to do as mm-hmm. a judge. As you were talking about, uh, about those three things, um, and you also mentioned how this is a bipartisan issue. Mm-hmm. 
This is not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. Right. But I keep coming back to the overall, the, the general public, especially when you were talking about how um, in, in your, your one program, how you know, the incarcerated, their students, mm-hmm. uh, and how um, really the justice system, if, if you've got an incarcerated population, you should really, you, education. Right. How do you deal with, with a person who says, or asks the question, why should the prisoner get more services than folks on the outside? So um, I, I'm glad you write that question. When I was at Otisville, one of the questions that came up is some of the corrections officers who were there saying, you know, they're in prison and they're getting a college education while I'm working two and three jobs for my yeah. own kids to go to college. My answer to that was, we're already there providing the classes. I, want, I asked our people, look at whether or not we can provide the same classes at the same time for those who are corrections officers. Why not do right, that? Right, smart. And so, um, so they, to me, I, I think it's a false choice when we say, you know, either educate people who are, who are incarcerated or educate people who are not incarcerated. Mm-hmm. I think we as a country need to be investing more in education, period. And I think that, that by educating folks who are in our prisons and jails, that it is in the long run a, such a good investment for us as a country to do that because— um, we're we're putting people out back on the right path to be successful. And if you want to look at it from a fiscal perspective, they're going to be taxpayers adding to the tax base and 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 supporting the communities from 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 that perspective as well. Um, one of the things that came up at the breakfast that we both attended was that there seemed to be a a disconnect. Mm-hmm. So uh, on at the Justice Department. On Capitol Hill, while there's some talk about criminal justice reform, there's that narrative, that punitive narrative that we've got to punish people who break the law. But then at the state and local level, however, when you talk to real people and you look at the polls, all the things you've just been talking about and were talked about at that breakfast, there's broad support for that. So why is why is there that huge gap between the people and the elected officials and why and how do you think and particularly as a president of the uh, of a college in dealing with criminal justice issues how does that gap get narrowed um so I'm going to answer it this way I I think that um what I'm hopeful about is because there is so much movement on the state and local <clears throat> level that that's where the leadership needs to come from and so um, while the national narrative isn't getting it, if we can show leadership from the state and local level and show what best practices are and be the voice and the leader and so um, and hopefully show the federal government, this is the direction the rest of the country is going. We're out of step. Let's get in step. Because you remember, look at the numbers, 2.2 million in state, total, in state and local prisons and jails, only 200,000 in federal prisons and jails. So we can have such a huge impact at the state and local level by making sure that by bringing it local and making sure people understand. And one of the things that we're doing at John Jay um, is is sharing best practices, creating a forum where people can come in and have difficult conversations to talk about tough issues. So on September 25th and 26th, we're having our second Smart on Crime Innovations Conference. Again, bipartisan um, support for this and talk about what are the things we know that are working in state and local governments and how to keep that momentum and energy going. And we're going to talk about the difficult issues of race. 
I'm so I was just about to to jump in there. And as we've we've sort of talked about it um, in terms of statistics, but talk further about just, you know, this huge issue that Mm. looms over criminal criminal justice issues and criminal justice reform. So um, we heard this morning from a professor who, who has empirical data to support this, that People don't wind up in the criminal justice system. The the biggest predictive factor is not criminal behavior. It's race and socioeconomic status. So our black and brown men in particular and boys are finding themselves in prison because of life circumstances. So I think that we've got to confront the data. And I think that's where data comes in handy because I think it— helps the argument and the discussion not be so emotionally charged when you look at real facts and data and you say, this is what's happening, and and let's look at it objectively and see, okay, if this is what's happening, where are the points of intervention where we can make a difference? Um, and, and we, you know, there's a lot of research. What my former chief of staff used to tell me is that it's not rocket science. We <laughs> know from the research what we need to do. The question is whether we have the will to do what we need to do, which is invest in in education, invest in healthcare, invest in providing safe housing for people so that people have an opportunity to succeed and and, and thrive. And that's, again, what everybody wants. I, I, I love when I, the, the benefit of the job when I had at the Department of Justice is I got to learn from so many different people. And I remember being in this conversation with um, someone from the Annie Casey Foundation who focuses on juvenile work and keeping juveniles out of the system. And they said, you know, we focus on the statistics when we're talking about poor black and brown children. We talk about um, reducing expens- expulsions and suspensions and, and all these things instead of focusing on uh, the things we ask about for our own children. How many are graduating? What are their grades? And we ought to be, you know, treating – and I like to say these are all our children. and We need to be focused on them holistically in the same way that we think about our own children. Are they getting the food, nutrition they need? Are they getting the education they need? Are they getting the supports, the social supports they need to be successful? And speaking of support, so Charlie Sykes, uh, conservative commentator, colleague of mine uh, as an MSNBC contributor, uh, not only did he uh, talk about, you know, the need to talk about race, but he also talked about the need to talk about the fact that most of the people in, in the criminal justice system are men mm-hmm. uh, and the importance of you know, fatherhood and, and having um, men as, as role models. How much of that factors into all of this? It's huge. It's inherent. And I think it's, it's, it's um, the genesis for, for President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, right. which mm-hmm. is still happening. Um, it is part of his foundation, and, and, and I am um, one of the folks on the advisory board. And what we're trying to do is change the narrative around how we see young men and boys of color, how they see themselves and how other people see them, and getting communities. And we've got My Brother's Keeper communities in, in every one of the 50 states where we're bringing people together from across sectors to focus on you know, developing these young men and boys into the successful leaders we know that they can be. And it's, it's, it's involving churches. It's involving businesses. It's involving government, nonprofits. Um, and we just launched a My Brother's Keeper um, challenge um, to, to invest in those that are successful. And again, so you can hold up the successful programs. But there are successes and there are things we can and should be doing. And there are partnerships that are out there. 
that the the challenges, and I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast, is people don't know the stories. Mm-hmm. People aren't hearing the successes the way that we like them to do, to, so that we can change this narrative and begin to see the promise. And and the success in so many of our young men and boys. You know, I'm going to ask you a question now, and you can answer it later because it puts you on the spot. But if there is a if there is a book or a report yeah. or a movie, something that would help further people's understanding, let let me know either before we end this or tell me after this, and then I'll put it in the piece that I write. Uh, let me ask you about some things that um, I'm very curious about. And I've, I've talked to Andrew Ferguson, professor at the University of the District of Columbia, and he's written a book about you know, data policing. Um, I have to ask you about predictive, pre- all these new things that are happening. Predictive policing. Um, I think Chicago has, what is it, the, the heat list mm-hmm. of people. And then, you know, artificial intelligence and what that's, the role that's going to play in, uh, in law enforcement. Just love your, your general view of these things. Do, do any of these things concern you? So I think the key with all of those things is you first have to do some foundational work in building trust between communities and our criminal justice system. Law enforcement first, our prosecution system next, and then our judges next. And so I think that so one of the initiatives that I launched when I was at the Justice Department is the National Initiative to Build um, Community Trust and Justice. And we've got six pilot sites. And the concept is to bring together law enforcement and communities to use the principles of procedural justice, implicit bias, and racial reconciliation, all of which are steeped in research, but bring them to the ground and bring them into communities to build that trust. And we've seen in New York City that um, that it is core to the police department. Are there outliers in places where it's not working perfectly? Absolutely. But the New York City Police Department is focused on building relationships in the community. And then when you, you, you know, you use these tools, you, you use them um, from a foundation of trust with each other and using them in a way that that is, you hope, is not going to have a disparate impact, but you stay focused on the data so that you can see that if it does, you're, you you tweak it and use it in a better way. So one of the things that um, we know is that it's really a handful of people in communities that are causing the problem. And what we've uh, what has happened in the past too much is you target the whole community instead of targeting those individuals who need to be um, addressed, whose behavior needs to be addressed. And when you have that trust with the community so they know that you're coming in not to not to treat everybody in the community as if they're a criminal, but focused on the behavior of the people who's, whom you need to address, then you've got this mutual trust, this mutual support with each other. And again, then you can focus on, uh, you know, we heard the, the Broward County school superintendent talk about how when the police um, schools, social services all got together to address the expulsion problem in Broward County. It got addressed and the crime rate goes down. Everything goes down because people are working collaboratively and you're finding out why is this person acting this way? So one of the one of the key questions we ask in the juvenile context is instead of saying, why did you do what you did, is what's going on? What's happening in your life? And so you can dig deeper and find out um, one story I like to tell that a police officer told us he was an, a school resource officer and he was asked to remove a child from the classroom because the teacher said he kept his head on the desk and wouldn't lift his head. So the police officer had been trained well. He went over and stood beside the young man and whispered to him, what's wrong? What's going on? And he said, will you come with me? When he talked to him quietly and he got him to leave the room with him, 
his friend had just been murdered the night before. Mm. That's what was wrong. And the teacher was just looking at the behavior and not not trying to understand what's really going on. And so um, so what I'm saying is, is is that people need to be looking at the at, at, at people as people and understanding what's going on in their lives that lead them to be where they are. And then we figure out how to address that situation. It doesn't mean that when someone does something wrong, you don't hold them accountable. The question is, what's the proper way to hold them accountable? And prison is not the answer for everything. Carol Mason, president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about something that I'm so passionate about. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like, Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a show that brings you daily analysis from political correspondent James Holman. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.